The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Many of us have uh, grown up in the church, and we've had a Sunday school experience where you're, each Sunday you step in the classroom and you learn these truths or you learn these stories that are told throughout Scripture. And just the way that it's set up, you can't necessarily tell the whole story of Scripture in you know, an hour and a half's time. So there's this tendency where we get these stories and they seem sort of segmented. They're kind of like standalone stories. And really, when we look at the Bible, it's really one big story that all of these little stories play a piece in. You know, they, they support the one big story, and they see this overarching narrative throughout Scripture. And as you see this, you start to find these themes that run throughout Scripture from start to finish. You see themes like sacrifice and worship that begin in the Old Testament and make its way to the New Testament. Last week, we, we looked at the theme of home, the sense that, that Eden was once home for Adam and Eve, and they lost home, and ever since then, there's been this longing, and God's been promising a new home, and we find this new home in the new heavens and new earth. There's a theme of curses and blessings, of, of covenants and promises, and these themes, they start out like streams, little pockets of water that sort of gain momentum, and as they gain momentum, they they collect more and more uh, stories and themes that come into it, and they turn into rivers, and, and these rivers eventually meet at the ocean. And this ocean in Scripture is Revelation 21 and 22. It's where we see all of the major themes of Scripture consummated, come to their fullness and fruition. Now, it's kind of funny because today's focal point in our passage is actually a river, Water is one of these repeating themes that we see throughout our Bible. Now, if you remember the story in Genesis where God creates Eden, he creates all the world, but then it kind of narrows in on this place called the Garden of Eden where God creates Adam and Eve in this beautiful, lush garden. And in this garden uh, is a river that, that seems to nourish and provide the, the, the resources the whole garden needs to flourish. We see the, the vegetation growing. We see animals flourishing and Adam and Eve enjoying life. And, and in the garden, there are, are two trees that God points out specifically for us to kind of lock in on. There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil, of good and evil. So we see this river supporting life here in the garden. And then when we get to Genesis... Throughout the story of Genesis, there, there are wells that come up. 
as God's people are going from place to place, whenever they come to a new land, one of the first things they do is they dig a well so they can get fresh water to drink and they could support the life that's around them. You go to Exodus and Moses is out in the wilderness leading God's people and they're without water in this desert and Moses strikes a rock and water gushes out. You go to the Psalms. And the psalmist, just as we saw this morning, speak of a river with streams that flow through it that make the city of God glad. The prophet Ezekiel has a vision of a little stream of water that comes out of the temple. And as it moves out of the temple, it keeps growing and growing and growing. As he walks through, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And wherever this water is touching, there's life flourishing and then you get to the New Testament and you see how water plays an important role. Even in, in one of the sacraments that Jesus gives the church of baptism, right? Water is a central piece of that. And it all leads up to this river in the new heavens and new earth that we find in Revelation 21 and 22. Now you know that water is an essential piece of life. In fact, our bodies, the body composition that we have is 60% water. We're supposed to hydrate 64 ounces every day, and we're constantly replenishing, right? You're kind of attached to your water bottle. In fact, you can't, your body cannot go more than two or three days without water before it starts to shut down and go into some sort of hibernation, so we're constantly drinking. And if you've got kids, you know this, right? It seems like kids have to take a drink of water every five minutes. My house, we've got sippy cups everywhere. They're like landmines. you got to drink. Everything needs water, even our food. You think about it. What, what do we eat? Well, we eat plants and animals. Plants need water. Animals need water. There's this sense that even our food is dependent on water, and not just humans, but all of creation needs water to survive. Now, you might think that when we get into the new heavens, new earth, there's these new rules where water somehow becomes obsolete, like we, we saw with the sun. In fact, that's what, one of the things that our passage points out, that there's no more night. The, the, the sun is irrelevant at this point because the God's glory is radiating throughout the whole heavens and earth. But water continues to play an important role in the new heavens, new earth. In fact, a river is at the center of the city. And like being Quad Cityans, we get this, right? The, the Mississippi River is running right through the middle of the Quad Cities. But this, this river that runs through the new heavens, new earth is unlike the nasty Mississippi River. Right? It's completely different, in fact. In, in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, Then in, the angel showed me, this is John, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. And as John continues to go in and take note of this water feature that we see in the new heavens, new earth, he, he's showing us that water in the new heavens, new earth is for more than just survival. This water that we find in the new heavens, new earth, has an incredible, I would even say a supernatural power to bring about the complete flourishing of everything it touches and the ability to restore anything that pulls on its sustenance. 
See, this, this water has the ability to bring healing, to soothe the wounds, and has the ability to maximize things to their full potential. And we think about it, there, there's no water like this in the world. It's something that we, we long for. It's something that we thirst for. And finally, we see what it is here. So we're going to unpack this. What, what is this water? What, what's it all about? What's it accomplish? What's it do? Now, I've, I've confessed to you before my uh, infatuation with nature documentaries. I love watching, you know, like Planet Earth and all that stuff, right? And as I watch these things, I start to collect a lot of information about biology. And the most diverse and biologically robust places in the world are either in or near water, especially rivers. Because these rivers have the ability to hydrate, provide the water that we need for survival, but they also carry nutrients that, that permeate the ground, that makes the ground viable for life. It allows Animals, the ability to survive. Plants, the ability to survive. And gives sustenance and shelter to all of the wildlife. And it's even true for humans. We, we notice if you look at the map, most of the major cities in our country are situated by some sort of water. We've done this for the sake of viability and, and livability, right? We, we need water and rivers provide a stream of fresh water sometimes, maybe not the Mississippi. But it also provides the, uh, the sense of economic flourishing, the ability for economic opportunity. If you think about it, back in the Old Testament where when Egypt was such a powerful nation, the reason why they were, had the ability to flourish was not because they had a lot of great ideas, but it's because, it's because the Nile River provided economic opportunity for them. So it's not just a matter of having water nearby to quench the thirst. It's, it's the, the sense of livelihood that water offers. And so we see that, that life tends to situate itself around water. And when it does, it flourishes, it grows. Now this is the picture that we see going through the Old Testament. Wherever there's water, God's people are, are flourishing. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel paints a picture of this water, and he says it's not just water in general. It's a sense that this water is flowing from God. He says, uh, this is in Ezekiel 47, a few verses here, starting with, with verse 6. It says, and he said to me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man, have you seen this? Then God led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw the bank of the river very, uh, on the bank of the river, very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah and, and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be many, very many fish. For this water goes there, that the water of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. 
He says, but the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will actually be left for salt. And on the banks and on both the sides of the river, there will grow many kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. He's going back to the temple. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, as as Ezekiel is getting this vision from God, he's noticing this robust expression of life that occurs around the river. There's literally a wall of green trees. Every sort of imaginal fruit that you could think of is being produced, and it's always in season. Its, Its fruit doesn't fail. The river supports all kinds of wildlife and, and fish. So if, if you like fish and you like fishing and hunting, like there's, there's great opportunity for you here. It's lush with food and produce. It's never out of season because the water in it carries life and gives life to everything that draws on it. And so as Ezekiel receives this vision from God, the same imagery is used to describe this river that we see in the holy city in the new heavens, new earth. We see this in in verses one through five, right? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, which is where the, the throne of God being in the temple, and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any, anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be upon their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, when we read this, this sounds like garden language, right? This looks like the lush garden, the the imagery that Ezekiel has as God points out this river flowing from the sanctuary and, and filling all the world with life. But last week we saw how the new heavens, new earth isn't necessarily just a garden, but it's a city. It's the city of God coming down out of heaven. And so in this sense, there's like a hybrid going on here. Yes, it's, it's garden. Yes, it's city. It's the best of both worlds. And like the, the, the Eden picture, the Garden of Eden that we get, the, the life that's supported, there are two trees, right? You remember the two trees in Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Well, here in in the new heavens, new earth, this new place where Jesus is bringing his people, there are two trees as well, one on both sides of the river. Only this tree, these two trees are of the same species. It's the tree of life. They're accessible from wherever you're at on the river. Its, it's fruit is always in season. It's, there's always an abundance of it, never a shortage. Now, what John is doing here, he's, he's been giving us a picture of the cuisine that we'll have in heaven. Now, I don't think we think about this very often. Like, what are we going to eat when we get to heaven? Like, will we need to eat? 
But, but what, what John is showing us here and showing us this, this river of life as bright as crystal, as, as, a, as a trees that are producing fruit, right? You look at this, it's like water and apples, right? Is that really what we're going to be eating in the new heavens, new earth? Right, if you went to public school, like that's, that's definitely not the food pyramid that we were, we were taught about, right? Now, if you're just thinking new heavens, new earth, all we get to eat is apples and water. It sounds kind of lame. Like if we're honest, right? right? Sounds kind of lame. Because sin, though it has ruined a lot of things in our world, one of the things that it has not completely ruined is our tongue's sensitivity to taste. In fact, you think of food, I think of good food as art for the tongue, right? Everybody can appreciate a good meal. We love flavors. It's not just the flavor, though. It's the ability to enjoy texture, food combinations, the aroma. Like, and you think about it, at least in my experience, I love food. I don't know about you, but like eating can be sort of a spiritual experience, right? Not, not to hype it up beyond what it is. It's, it's a physical meal, but, but when you taste it, when you, when you have a really good meal, like there's a sense where, oh my goodness, you just want to bust out and worship. You know what I'm talking about? If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to come to one of our missional communities and somebody will cook a good meal for you and you'll be like, oh baby, So it seems like if our experience here on earth is this variety of food and exquisite flavors, like going to apples and water sounds like a downgrade, right? But what John shows us here is that the river of life is so potent with life. It's so potent with the potential of flourishing that whatever hits it, whatever draws upon that water actually is transformed. It flourishes beyond what we can even imagine. And so with the, the, the water of life touching the tree of life, now this tree of life produces a type of fruit unlike anything we could ever imagine. It produces a fruit that literally says 12 different flavors. And I don't know, maybe it's 12 different flavors, you know, one for each month. Maybe it's 12 different flavors all at one time. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. But here's a tree that produces 12 different types of fruit. Now, just, just muse with me on this for a moment because I think this is quite fascinating. Like, if we want a peach, we go to a peach tree. If we want a pear, we go to a pear tree. If we want an apple, we go to an apple. Here you go to one tree. You've got a variety. Okay, if this, is, if this is what one tree is like, with this sort of twist on flavor, a new variety, just imagine what bacon is going to be like. Right? Just imagine the potential of a peach pie. It's going to be insane. You can't even comprehend what it's going to be like. And if you think you've tasted good food now, just wait. Because the food that's coming, the new heavens, new earth, oof. It would knock you on your tuchus right now. Now, what this is, this little, it seems like we're musing here. It seems like it's insignificant. But what's actually happened here, it's given us a picture of just the degree of flourishing that's happening in the new heavens, new earth. That whatever this river of life, whatever the water of life comes in contact with, it, it brings about a new, new sense of flourishing. 
And if that's what heavenly water does to a tree, just imagine the kind of fruit it's going to produce in us. Think about it. Everybody, everybody has an output. We're always offering some kind of, of fruit, whether it's good fruit or bad fruit. And in this life, we have this combination where we desire to put out good fruit, like the good virtues. We want to be patient and generous and kind and loving and hospitable. But, but there's this bad fruit that seems to make its way out with bitterness and jealousy, envy, lack of control. And so the way that we produce fruit in our lives now is really this mixture of good and bad fruit. But here in the new heavens, new earth, imagine the good fruit that comes out of us there. Right? In the same way where the trees are hit and they produce a variety of flavors. The trees flourish in a new way. So will human flourishing be as well. And this is the purest, most potent form of the fruit of spirit that we could ever imagine. Right? You know the fruit of spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Right? Those are things that the Apostle Paul says that in our life when we believe the gospel and the spirit of God is working in us to help us follow Jesus in every matter of life, those are the, th those are the fruits that come out of us. That's what's gonna come out of us all of the time in the new heavens, new earth. It's where life breeds more life. It's where the tree of life gives us a new fruit, a better fruit that leads to human flourishing in its truest sense. And so we see how this, this river life promotes flourishing for everything it touches, but, but it goes even further. John gives us a little bit of, of more nuance here than just the idea of flourishing and abundance. Because as the river of life touches the tree of life, the tree of life produces leaves for the healing of the nations. We see that in verse uh, two or three. Verse two. Now when we hear this, the leaves for the healing of nation, the initial picture that we get about this, right? When we're thinking about heaven, right? Everybody kind of has this assumption that in heaven there's peace, which, which is a good assumption, right? There's peace there and we typically gravitate toward like world peace, there's no more wars. There's no more famines. All of the conflict there's no, is gone. There's no more tension. There's no tribalism. No more nationalism. No more war. And, and that's a good thing, right? It, that's true that there's, there's a sense of shalom, of, of peace, where all of the nations are on the same team because we're under God. There, there's no more uh, Hatfields and McCoys. Everybody is united because we are united by the blood of Christ. And so there's a sense where the storied human history that we have, right? You sit in, in school and you learn about the different conflicts and wars that have happened. And you, you watch the news and you see how different nations are interacting with each other. And it seems very tumultuous. All of that is repaired. It's brought back to a healthy standing. But that's only, that's only a piece of it. That's only a piece of, of what it means for the nations to be healed, it also means that there's a sense where everyone individually will be physically healed. 
healed of sickness, healed of cancer, healed of disease. There's this restorative property that the river of life, as the river of life touches the tree of life, and, and the tree of life produces the leaves for the healing of nations, that, that physical hurt is repaired. There's a day where there will be no more backaches, no more headaches. You don't need glasses. You don't need to get a flu shot. Pharmacies will become obsolete. Sorry, Jim. Insurance is irrelevant. Hospitals are unnecessary. The day is coming. If, if you're on medication now, there's a day coming where you won't have to remember to take your morning pills. Everything is restored to health. Even the deteriorating effects of, of getting older. Like, you, you can't escape it, right? The older we get, the more time wears away at us. In a sense, this, this river, there's been this obsession throughout human history about, about the fountain of youth, right? It's been sort of this theoretical thing that sent, you know, the conquistadors out into Florida, and they were looking for it in Florida. I don't think they found it yet, but it's interesting because all the old people seem to migrate to Florida. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's there. But it's got this power, this river uh, of life has this power to, to undo the effects of time where you regain mobility. Right? You, you're gonna, if you're old now and you can't really move, you're going to run again. You're going to lift heavy objects. Your reflexes are going to be restored. You're going to regain stamina. Your energy, your strength will be restored to you. One of the things that I hear from, from older people, I'm not quite there yet, but the older you get, the harder it is to sleep. Now, I don't know if sleep is going to be a thing in the new heavens, new earth, because there's just going to be sun and no nighttime all the time. But if there were sleep, it's not going to be a problem anymore. The healing power of this river of life is so restorative. It doesn't just take us back to our prime, like when we were in our 20s and our, our 30s. It makes us even better than the prime that we experienced here on earth. But then again, this physical ailments that we feel, it's still, again, only a portion. When you think about it, where are the places that you most need healing in your life? Right? They're probably emotional, relational. Now, everybody carries around these deep and defining emotional wounds. Maybe they're relational wounds. Maybe they're, they're mental wounds where there's some sort of impairment that happens as we navigate our way through life. Listen, I know I have wounds. I know I have deep heartache in my own life. I have broken friendships. I have underlying insecurities that I, I constantly fight against. And, and I might not know you personally, but I know enough about you to know that you have your own wounds too. It, it, it might be relationships. You've had really difficult relationships, maybe your ex has created a lot of heart wounds. You, you, were, you were a punching bag for bullies. Maybe you've got some deep parental wounds, right? 
mom and dad, they, they didn't live in to their role as good, godly parents as they should have. And so you've got these daddy issues or mommy issues that just seem to follow you wherever you go. You could have some emotional wounds. Maybe it comes from yeah, parents getting divorced, losing friends. Maybe it's more on, on the mental end of things. You, you're fighting depression and anxiety. You've got fears and insecurities that just hunt you down. And if you're looking at me like I'm full of it, like I don't have any of that stuff. It means that you either haven't lived long enough to experience those wounds, the, that brokenness, or you're not being honest about the wounds that you've already accumulated. See, to love means to live, and to live means to love. And when you live and you love, it means that you are making yourself vulnerable to brokenness. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this uh, in his book, The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully Round it with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all the entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. If you've loved, you've come in contact with the vulnerabilities, the brokenness, the wounds. And we carry it around, no matter where we go, as some sort of baggage. And with that, there's this reality that we have unmet expectations. That we have longings that have not been met or satisfied. These inner ailments and pains and wounds, we credit to living in a messy and broken world, which is true. And so we think of ways to manage these things. To, to suppress them or to, to nurse them or pacify them as we make our way through life so they don't flare up in big dramatic ways. See, this, these wounds, these, this brokenness that we experience create a desire for wellness that can literally be felt in the gut. It's a guttural longing. It's as palpable as being thirsty for water. Now, if we avoid the temptation of resignation where we say, this is just the way it is, 
I'll never find what I'm looking for. I'm just gonna give up. If we avoid that temptation, we have a longing for these things to be fixed, for these desires to be met, to experience this healing, the restorative power. But the issue is here, while we're on earth, is that the restorative process, the act of healing is long and hard. And for every step you take forward, it sometimes feels as if you take two steps back. Right? If you go to a psychiatrist, if you go to a counselor, they're probably going to warn you that before it gets better, it's going to get worse. And so it's hard heart work that has to happen if we want to heal. And it's not a simple course. It's not done by reading a book. It's by living life and living, living and loving in a way that brings restorative health. In a very real sense, true healing is supernatural. You can't do it with what the world has to offer. You can't. Yet we try to. We try to, to quench the supernatural thirst with a natural remedy. We, we self-medicate. We use things in our life like band-aids to cover up the wounds. We use things or people to either avoid or attempt to fulfill us. And there's the, the classic stuff that you think of, right? There, there's like the booze, the drugs, sex, and porn, and all the things that we look at. And like, obviously, those things can be overdone and bad. Right? You give yourself to those things, and, and eventually it'll just numb you to the point where you don't feel anything at all. Or we hide in resignation and defeat. We, in, we indulge in meaningless things. Video games and Netflix, we just sort of turn our mind off so we can't be aware of, of the hurt that's going on inside. But we don't do, just do this with the bad stuff. We can do this with things that are good, like ordinary things in life where we're like, yeah, yeah that's a good thing that you would in, involve yourself with that. But these good things turn bad when we try to use them to satisfy this deep soul thirst we have for healing, to make ourselves feel whole. We use things like our jobs and shopping and kids to curate a sense of everything is okay with us, that everything's all right in our world. To present the, the false reality that we're satisfied in life. Now, here's how this works out, right? I think especially for men, not exclusively, but especially for men, there's this, we can take our jobs and we can twist them into something that they weren't meant to be. We can start to use our jobs as validation to fight against the voice that we have either in our heads internally or a voice that's external that tells us that we don't measure up. And so we go to work and we work really hard. Not that hard work is bad, but we give ourselves to our work in a way where we compromise the other good things that we're supposed to be paying attention to in our life. We become a workaholic, putting the long hours, obsessed over work, trying to prove that we're worth something, trying to satisfy this deep inside feeling that, that something's wrong. 
And you know that this is true because, because when you're criticized, when, you, when you're critiqued about your job or even that you spend too much time at work, you get defensive. Right, it's because this thing is so valuable to me. It's, it's giving me something that I need to survive. It's, it's telling me that everything is okay. So you get defensive. Now this one might fit more for women, but I, I find myself with this too, using shopping as a cover-up to feel, the, to cover up the feeling that we're lacking something. Right, we've got this term called like, what is it, Sh- shopping therapy or something like that, right? You, oh, you're sad? Just go to Target. But, but that's, that's real. Th- that feeling you have, that, that wound that you have, you're trying to cover it up with something that can't satisfy. You buy that new thing, three weeks later you forgot what you bought and you're off for the next thing. Or our kids. Man, God gave us such a gift in having kids. I love, I love the fact that we have a kid's wing downstairs. It's full of kids, full of life, full of energy. It's great. But as parents, we can use our kids and sort of manipulate them in a way to kind of repair this, this inner wound that we have. We can either live vicariously through them, trying to gain the experiences that we wish that we had, or we can start depending on their obedience and their reciprocating love to fulfill us. And then there are the more secret attempts that we have at this, this sense of trying to, to bring healing to this wholeness in our, where we start gossiping. We're judging others. We're putting people down so that we feel superior. And that's the thought is that if I put this person down, then I'll feel better about myself, that things will be right internally with me. But you see, these things only compound the misery. They only add to the brokenness. We chase after the things that we think will make us better, but they only drain us. They only empty us. Now, this is, this is the story of fallen humanity. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God is speaking to Jeremiah, and he says, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. So he's saying that you've forsaken the source. You've forsaken the water that can satisfy that deep longing that you have for things to be right. And instead, you've turned to broken fountains. This is the fallen condition where we use natural water to quench a spiritual thirst. And no matter who you are or where you're at in life, this is a reality that's playing out in your life. We are all prone to drink from bad faucets. And and we think that, oh yeah, this is going to make us feel better. But really what we're drinking is poison water. 
It's filled with lead and rust. Instead of offering healing, it just makes us more broken and hinders our flourishing and healing. Now, when Jesus was walking the earth, he had an encounter that exposed this reality perfectly. It's in John's gospel, actually. In John chapter four, Jesus meets a a woman at a well in midday. This is John chapter four, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, now what's happening here is it's socially scandalous here. First of all, this this woman is coming to draw water in the midday. That, That would be not the norm. Typically, if you're doing something that's labor, labor uh, uh, inducive or whatever, not that you go, you know what I'm talking about? Not labor inducing. She's not pregnant. Intensive, intensive thank you. <laughs> labor intensive. You want to do it in the morning before the heat comes. This woman is going to the mid- middle of the day. She's ashamed to be with the other ladies who would gather around the well. And the second thing that's socially scandalous is the fact that Jesus, who is a Jew, is talking to a Samaritan woman, who, again, you talk about the rivalries, the Hatfields, the McCoys, Samaritans and Jews, this conflict. She's like, why would you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan woman? And then there's also the stigma of of this patriarchal society of of that first century where, where men would not really talk to women unless there was some sort of familial tie there. But what is actually the most scandalous thing about this interaction is not the social interaction, but it's the fact that Jesus seems to have a water that this woman does not have access to. Like she's standing at a well with a bucket, and Jesus says, I have a different kind of water that if you were to ask me, I would give it to you. And he says, this is a living water. Now, this is kind of a confusing statement. A a living water? What what, what is that? And so he kind of provides clarity here in verse 11 of John chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, this would, like, if you stop there, oh, cool, Jesus is giving her living water. Now, listen, Jesus reveals something about her in this next couple verses. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, 
and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, what is, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is exposing the, the reality of this woman, the wounds that are deep in this woman's heart, that she's trying to fulfill a spiritual thirst with natural water. She, she's looking at the intimacy and approval of men for only what God can offer in a spiritual drink. And Jesus shows, look, lady, it's not working. You've already had five husbands, and the guy you're with now, he's not even your husband. So Jesus says to her, I have a water. I've got a, a water that can quench that deep thirst. I've got, a, I've got a water that can end this cycle of brokenness in your life. A water that can satisfy you even to the core of your being. Now you'll notice, she actually, she doesn't take a physical drink of water. Like, as the story unfolds, she doesn't draw water and then Jesus, like, hand it back to her and, like, does some sort of hocus pocus and now it's living water. She, she doesn't even put her, wa- her bucket in the well. Instead, Jesus speaks to her and she leaves her bucket behind. Now, that's important because, because she's saying, like, I'm here at the well to drink water and pull up water from this well. I found a new water that this bucket is now irrelevant for me. And she goes out because she's satisfied and she starts telling others. Now, listen, it's like it, you just want some clarity here. What, what is it exactly that Jesus is offering this woman like, what, what, what is this in the well? What, you look at it, it's definitely not some compound of hydrogen and oxygen. In fact, this water that Jesus offers this woman is, is the same water that we see in the new heavens and new earth. This woman got a taste of the river of life. But what is it? What is this water? Now, the key to understanding this is to follow the water upstream to its source. Look back at Revelation 21 in the first verse here. Where where does this water flow from? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. See, this isn't just water. That this river of life is the love of God that flows from the throne and permeates every nook and cranny of the new heavens and new earth. That fills the city. That fills the hearts of those who live in the city. Now that's why that, li- that woman left her bucket at the well. She doesn't need to take a literal drink because she has found the love that she is craving She has found her desires and her longings, her deep wounds healed and fixed, and those longings met. And friends, this is what your soul is thirsty for. And until you drink deeply of this water, you will always be thirsty. Now, if if Fiji water is $5 a bottle, 
there's got to be an astronomical price on this bottle of water, right? To have, to have the water that can provide flourishing, to, to unlock you to the full potential. A, a water that offers uh, the satisfaction of your deepest longings and desires and the healing of your wounds. There's no way you could afford that. If you look, and I don't, I don't have this up on the screen. Actually, maybe I do. Yes, I do. Revelation 22, verse 17. As John is like wrapping up this book, he, he leaves us with this invitation. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. See, he, he's, he's offering an invitation the church and the spirit say, come, come to the water. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There's an invitation that stands right now to come and drink. Come, drink deeply from the river of life. Find your deepest longings met in the love of Jesus. Find your validation. Find your satisfaction, your identity, your worth. Find this deep love that offers you the sense of wholeness and completeness. And take it free of charge. Now, the reason why it's free is because Jesus has already paid the price so that you could have it. You realize that? It's free to you because Jesus paid the ultimate price. Now, now I hope you're wondering, I, I kind of flew over it intentionally, but when in the garden there are these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then here in the new heavens, new earth, we have these two trees, but it's the tree of life and the tree of life. I, I hope you're wondering what, why there's this discrepancy between these two trees. Why is the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil gone in the new heavens, new earth? It's because when we took that, when Adam and Eve took that tree, the fruit from the tree, they ate it and they were cursed. And here in the new heavens, new earth, there is no more curse. Verse 3 says in Revelation 22, no longer will anything be accursed. And the reason why nothing will be a curse in the new heavens and new earth is because the curse of Genesis 3, when, when all creation started unraveling, where goodness was tainted, where the human experience was now marred by sin and death and brokenness, that curse is absorbed. Because in the new heavens new earth, all things are renewed, and here's why. The reason why we get access and blessing to the tree of life and to the river of life is because Jesus hung on the tree of death. That he was cursed as he hung upon the tree. That he drank the cup of wrath that God had for humanity down to the dregs.
And now the, the wrath of God is satisfied. The curse that was on humanity has been broken. Now Jesus did this. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. There is no reason. There, there is no real upside for Jesus except that he would glorify the Father in showing the Father's love to undeserving sinners. And when you've encountered the great love of Jesus Christ and respond with faith, what's left for you is only life. There's no more curse. There's no more wrath. You find your deepest longing satisfied. You, you're able to, to live an abundant and flourishing life to your maximum potential. To be completely restored and healed as your life in Jesus Christ starts working itself out now and will be consummated in the new heavens, new earth. And the apex of this Right, the, the reason why the stream, you follow the stream back up, why? Because it gets you face to face with God. That's an access to a deep love that we've never had before. And here in the new heavens, new earth, there's no need for sun to, to shine. There's no more night because we look and behold the glory of God shining and radiating through the new heavens, new earth. We see his face. I love how C.S. Lewis, he, he's so, so creative and sort of using the story in Chronic of Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia to, to, to kind of make this come alive. And, and if you know the story, Aslan is this great lion who, who represents Christ in the story, who, whose sacrificial death allowed this, this forever winter place to regain life, where he says it's always winter but never Christmas. It's always, this, it's always February in the Midwest, is what he's saying. But Jesus comes as life, death, and resurrection, brings a new life. And he says, at the sound of Aslan's roar, sorrows will be no more. That everything broken and cursed is wiped out. Now all that's left is life. Now this is what heaven is like. That's what we have to look forward to. And, and I hope that it's it pulling on your heartstrings and, and creating a holy discontentment for this world that we live in now. But Christians aren't people who only live in the future. That, are, oh, I'm just hanging in, hanging in there until heaven comes. No, see, the, the power of life that Jesus offers is so powerful that it, it works its way backward to the present reality that it transforms us right now. In John chapter seven, a little bit after that story of the woman at the well, Jesus says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as a scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, we're not, we're not holding out until we get to heaven to get, get a hold of this living water. This living water is available to us right now. 
And when you drink deeply on the love of Christ, when it becomes essential to your livelihood day in and day out, whether it be the big celebrations in life or or the small, minuscule stuff going on, you have access to the love of Christ. And in access to the love of Christ, you become a fountain of living water. See, Christians aren't just consumers who who drink. We're a conduit of that living water. That that from us, we should see the fruitfulness of of the water. We should start to see our our hearts being healed and and the wounds made better because the gospel is at work work in our hearts. And when you live that way in, in a city that is constantly feeling the weight of the curse, we begin to live in a way that offers true refreshment to point to the source where the love of Christ pours out and promote the abundant life, to strive for healing as we become who we are made to be through the gospel. Father, I'm thankful that you have made us with desires that were too big to be satisfied by what earth has to offer. I'm thankful for the power and the tenacity that your love carries that we could say, give me Jesus and take everything else. As long as I have Jesus, my heart is satisfied. Father, would you, would you become real to us in a way, the love of Christ would become real to us in a way where we constantly are drinking deeply on the love of Christ, that it transforms us into a people who, who flourish because your love has found us and sought us out, not because we have tried harder and done better, but because you have set your love on undeserving sinners and that you are working to make all things new, Father. We are so grateful. I pray that you would create in us a longing for heaven that we've never had before, but a longing for heaven in a way that transforms the lives we live now. And Father, to that end, would this meal that we're about to partake in help in our transformation, to know the height, the depth, the width of God's love for us in Christ that he would not withhold his own son, but give him up to heal us, to offer life to the fullest. That was the promise of Jesus. I've come so that you may have life to the fullest. And in this life, as, as outwardly we are wasting away, would we be renewed moment by moment by this transformative love? God, for our good and for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.